0: what's up everybody welcome to today's episode of Podmosh. i had the privilege of speaking with dr ryan Holloman, who is a professor of counseling at one of these local universities in the dfw area but first i want to highlight a company for you guys it's called rise and shine bread company they've just released their valentine's day menu and you still have time to get your orders in Choose from chocolate-covered strawberries, an assortment of breads, cocoa bombs, and more. There's just a whole lot of things you can uh, order from. Uh, There's something for everybody during this Valentine's Day. You can find them on Instagram under at rsbreadco, that's R-S-B-R-E-A-D-C-O, or on Facebook under at Rise and Shine Bread Company, that's Rise and Shine Bread, one word, C-O. Head over to the, one of their pages, shoot them a message, to, and you place their, your orders that way. Um, but you got to hurry, though, because the this sale, this special, all the orders are closing on February 7th at 10 p.m. That's February 7th at 10 p.m. That's the last time you can uh, or, uh, make an order for this. Really cool, guys. You guys got to check these guys out. Okay. Dr. Ryan Hallman, he is a professor of counseling. Like I said, he spent roughly 15 years in the field of mental health. He also has his private own private practice. He's also a registered play therapist. Uh, he has, talks a lot about kind of that genre of mental health and how important play therapies for children. We also get into a lot about uh, neuroticism because that's actually who he loves to work with. He loves to work with neurotic overachievers. (laughs) Those are his words and we will explain that during the intro. But uh, it was super, super awesome to talk to this guy. Extremely smart. I just, I learned so much. So you guys listen to this and uh, hopefully you guys enjoy. Thanks. And we are live, Dr. Holloman. Thank you so much for joining me on my show. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. So I reached out to you. Um, You work at a local university. And uh, I was like, hey, man, uh, I love kind of your specialty. Um, Would you mind coming on the show? You're like, yeah, totally. So first off, tell me who you are.
1: Yeah, so I am Ryan Holloman. I am. I've done a lot of different things, but I uh, I'm a professor of counseling at a local university, and then I also run a, a small private practice as well. So I've been in the mental health field for about fifteen years now.
0: Oh wow! Now, specifically, what is your like? What what's your the main thing that you that you love to work on and talk to people about, uh, teach about things like that?
1: Yeah. So I have a few things. The thing okay. that, in terms of a therapist, I really like to do is um. I say this tongue in cheek, but I love to work with neurotic overachievers. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. I. I had a uh, a supervisor once that said, "It doesn't matter where you go, your people will find you, and that's how you know your tribe." And I just kept like getting these clients that were like not like C suite, like CEOs, but like just below that, or like. I'm a professor of something really random and I need someone who understands that world. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so I work with those kinds of people. Um, and sort of in terms of counseling, what I've really worked with is work is going great and the rest of your life is, well, it's definitely there. Um, Mm, And so it's like, let's figure out how to make sure like home life and, you know, when you're sitting at home that you don't like just have this anxiety spiral (laughs) all the time um, or replay the same events from your life over and over. So Mm. I do a lot of stuff there. And then um, I've done a bit of research on uh, mental health in the schools uh, because having been. Like one form or another, I've never really left school. Mm. I just changed which color pen I use. Oh, dude, I love that. Um, so, and that, think, that's literally what I want to do, by the way. So that's amazing. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the challenges is school teaches us some really bad lessons mm. about life. Because um, one of the things that really got to me was like, I finished all my degrees. And so then I was just out like in academia and in the world as like no one's telling me if I'm doing a good job or not. Hmm. Like I don't get an A++ gold <laughs> gold star you're doing great you're I approve of you. Like you weren't huh. getting that message because that's what you get when you were a good student, right? Yeah. Is like yeah. that constant affirmation kind of positive feedback. Yeah, but the positive feedback, even though we use that word positive, it's almost like a set of golden handcuffs. Like, hmm. not only do I like getting the positive feedback, but sometimes I'm almost like a drug addict. Ooh. Like, I'll wow. do whatever I need to
0: do to get that positive feedback. Okay, that's that's massive. That's actually a really, really good thing i like, can you can you expound more on that? Cause that's yeah, um, that's hitting something that I, I want to get more into. So, to expound more on, on why people act like that. Cause I felt that way as well. Like, I even, yeah. you know, I, I just switched over to, um, being a stay-at-home dad full-time. I was mm-hmm. working full-time, I did EMS for a little while, but, um, I to where you get those, like, when you save a life or whatever, it, it's, it feels good. You know, it's like, oh yeah, yeah. we saved a life, you know, blah, 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 Um, But you know, being a stay-at-home dad, um, the stay-at-home mom life, stay-at-home dad life is very different. You know, yeah. uh, I love doing what I do here, but you do, I have realized in myself that I have lost a lot of that What well, we positive feedback loop. Um, and explain why we feel that way and why that's kind of a, a thing in culture.
1: Okay, so I think those are some really big questions. So the first thing that I'll bring us back to is this psychologist in the 60s and 70s named Carl Rogers. And he said that we have, all humans have a need for unconditional positive regard. So basically you get positive feedback for you being you. Right. I'm not going to put any conditions on who you are, Caleb. Okay. I'm just going to love you as you are. Right. So here's the thing. Well, that's the goal, but that doesn't happen. Yes, exactly. Like how many places can we go and say there is no condition our positive regard? Even think about it this way. Right. I am sure you seem like a great dad and like you love your kids. <laughs> But what if your kid grew up to be a serial killer? Mm-hmm. Would that love look the same way? Yeah. I mean maybe but <laughs> <laughs> probably change a little bit, right? Yeah. And so what we do is we say I want positive regard so much that I'm willing for people to put conditions on it. I'm willing to do things hmm. maybe that don't fit with my sense of who I am so that I get that positive feedback because when we really look back at positive feedback is about attachment, which uh, just for anyone who doesn't know what attachment is or what I mean when I say that attachment is the relationship you build with your primary caretaker that sets the blueprint for every relationship that follows. And so, we would rather have that strong powerful primal love and so we're willing to say i will change myself i'll do anything it takes Hmm. to get that love (sighs) but then that causes some problems because it's like here's one thing i've experienced what if you get positive feedback for something that you hate doing, right? Like at your job, you're like, oh man, you did such a great job on that report. And you're like, I hate doing reports. (laughs) That was the worst two weeks of my life. Yeah. (laughs) And so then you're like, well, I guess that's my life now. I guess I'm the report guy because that's how I get that feedback
0: so there's almost two different types of satisfaction because we know that in the brain dopamine is the main thing that gives us pleasure right and there's a variety of different ways that dopamine gives us that pleasure um and and it seems like you know this positive feedback loop is that addict it's that drug that you're talking about Mm -hmm. um but it's not in the things that we want to do like you're saying so are there different levels of satisfaction that we can almost get caught into it's satisfying but it's a bad satisfaction
1: Yeah, so there's this concept called locus of evaluation, which basically means where do we locate the source of what tells us whether something was good, meaningful, pleasant, desirable? Is it located in us or is it located in other people? (laughs) Um there's this uh, famous psychiatrist named Irvin Yalom, who's an existentialist. And he wrote this book called um, Mama. Quick, quick. Oh, sorry. What, go ahead. What's,
0: what's an existentialist?
1: Oh, thank you. Um, an existentialist in terms of psychotherapy yeah. is someone who believes that the key to healing is about those concepts rooted in the very nature of our existence. And so four things that existentialists tend to look at are, How do we find meaning? How do we deal with our basic anxiety about death? How do we deal with freedom? Which is actually kind of scary because if Mm. you have total freedom, that's all on you, pal. (laughs) And and then how do we deal with isolation? And so he wrote about this dream he had where he was like in the middle. He was in midlife. He was on this roller coaster. And as he goes by, he sees his mom standing on the ground and he calls out to her mama did i do okay hmm. and i think for a lot of us there's that constant like i want to look to other people to say like i do this okay am i doing right did i spend my life in worthwhile manner hmm. and what i might challenge people who are listening is asking yourself did i like what i did hmm. do I find this to be fitting with my values. Um, Man. And that's hard to do because we've been
0: trained uh, not to. Wow. So it's really the search for the meaning of everything. Absolutely.
1: And the challenge here is we've been taught by society. Look to your authority figures look to your betters to tell you if this is good or not if this is worthwhile or not and the real challenge i think this is especially something people in midlife experience because the first half of your life you're just trying to learn make the skills you need. <laughs> yeah make it let's try to like not eat ramen anymore um uh, okay I will say, so
0: last night i actually did wake up it was like actually i never fell asleep it was it was probably 2 30, 3 o'clock before I fell asleep. But I was like, man, I just got the hunger for some ramen. So I made myself some ramen at like one o'clock last night, had some tea by myself in the living room. It was kind of weird. But- yeah. No, but yeah, but it's a choice, right? Yeah, it's it not like oh, uh,
2: I have to um, have ramen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Those are my only choices beef or chicken. So, <laughs> um, but do I value what I'm doing? do I and middle life a lot of love, what we look at then is like, do I actually like what I've done this far or do I want to make a change? Which is why we see so many people in that thirties to forties era, try a new career, try mm. a new relationship, try, you know, pick up a random hobby because mm. they're like, maybe there's more out there. And mm. that for me is a really powerful, uh, Search, so it's a longing for
0: fulfillment. Yeah,
1: so and really not all just good, not just a longing for fulfillment, but a longing for what you find fulfilling as opposed to what you've been told would be fulfilling.
0: So that's that's kind of that line that people start to cross. So what you're saying is, at the beginning of life, the authority figures in a life, whether it be parents, um managers people you look up to, maybe you don't even realize you look up to, but you look up to them. They're the ones who are, who we almost subconsciously uh, allow to, to tell us what is good or bad. Is that what you're saying? And then whenever one day we kind of realize, and maybe, maybe it takes years to build that confidence back up in ourselves to, to really start questioning, what do we want? That's when midlife crisis occur.
1: Yeah, I, I think huh. that's um, that would be my experience. That's interesting. And it would be really easy for me to say, therefore, all the authority figures in your lives are just absolute villains <laughs> and we need to abolish all authority. I, I wish that were true because that makes life a lot easier, right? <laughs> um, but it's not like I think it's just a human nature thing of how we engage with authorities is. You either push them away, which I certainly had a lot of friends as I was growing up, who like, I'm not going to listen to any authority figure. Or you accept them wholeheartedly. But that middle ground, that's a lot harder, a lot more rare for people uh, to naturally gravitate towards.
0: So it sounds like you've, you're dealing with a lot of narcissists. Is that right? Narcissism? Um, uh, okay, I know that's kind of a very, very blanket statement no, there. But- um, certainly, I think...
1: Let me think of how I'm going to qualify this. <laughs> the answer is a yes, but. Yes. It's always so, a yes, but with research. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when you're working at a university, so this is something important for anyone going into academia. You go to college, like bachelor's degree. You're with people who were on the smarter side of the room. Um, not to say that people that don't go to college aren't smart, but those people were told, oh, you're smart. You should go to college. And then you're like, I want to get a master's degree. And those people were some of the smartest people in the room in their undergrad classes. Hmm. And then people go on to get a doctorate. And they're the people who were the smartest people in the room in the graduate school. So you've got people that have over and over been the smartest people in the room. And so why wouldn't they be narcissists? (laughs) when you've got a bunch of people with doctorates um or people who were super successful and you get to a point where you start not listening to feedback sometimes so it's almost like you flip on the other side of like i've i've gotten so much positive feedback but that's all i can hear oh wow
0: how do, you, uh, how do you combat that though? Because we studies show, I mean, narcissism, most, okay, maybe not most, but a lot of CEOs, like you're saying, a right. lot of CEOs of big companies, a lot of big name people tend to lean towards narcissism. Now, granted, if they're labeled a narcissist doesn't necessarily mean they don't have tendencies of narcissism. Right. So, how do we call, quali- like you're saying, how do we qualify a lot of these issues and how do we fix, um, can maybe not fix, How do we understand that whole genre of the population? Okay. So that's a really
1: great point. Um, so there is when you look at studies of personality
0: disorders, Oh, I'm sorry, real real um, quick. Oh, good. I don't know your degrees. Tell me your degrees real quick. Oh,
1: I'm sorry. Yeah. So I have a bachelor's in literature, uh, master's (laughs) in counseling and then a PhD in counselor education supervision. Oh, wow. Okay. And do Do you have kids? I do not have kids. Okay. I first of my uh, career, I worked with kids almost (laughs) exclusively. I don't now, but I had several experiences where I'm like, things can go really wrong. Like, I worked with some special needs kids, which are wonderful, but takes a lot more work Uh on the parent side. And I was like, you got to really want kids to be able to deal with whatever comes your way. I'm like, Mm. I feel ambivalent. That's probably not a good, good, uh, good pathway into becoming
0: a father. So, uh, um, well, I will say I'm going to now, again, yeah. this is, this has no, maybe no credence on anything you do in the future, but I was like that too. I was like, I want kids maybe one day, but you know, my wife and I had just gotten married. We weren't really wanting kids for another six or seven years. Cause I was going to go to med school, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then we got pregnant really early on. And then it, as soon as I had my kids, it was like, it opened up a box, a love box I never knew I had. I think that's how a lot of people feel. There's, I even know quite a few uh, doctors now who had that same mindset where they were like, absolutely not. It's just career. I don't want kids. And then they got pregnant accidentally. And then as soon as they got pregnant and then had the kids, it was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So, I mean, I, I know you, you probably have done your own research on kids and blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, but. It does open up a love box you never knew you had. I will say that.
1: No, that's absolutely. I do not doubt that. Um, But I think whatever end of the spectrum you end up with kids, for me, it's about this idea of generativity, which is a $64 word for how are you giving back to the next generation? Mm -hmm. And for some people, it's kids. And I think that makes sense. And for other people, like uh, my I'm. I've been married for about 13 years now. My wife and I both go to a free clinic on Saturdays and give our time there. And so it's, it's always about like, how can you give to a new generation whether that means someone you're genetically tied to
0: yeah. or not. That's a really cool mindset to have. I really like that. And mm-hmm. it kind of goes back to like, even how you're, how you talk about um, giving back. That's a good question. Like why do people want to give back into society whenever we already struggle with our own self-worth?
1: Um, I think two immediate answers come to mind. One is, if we look at the idea of evolutionary psychology, which I'll define that just briefly, evolutionary psychology looks at, okay, if we look at evolution, the basic idea is that traits that make us survive long enough to procreate tend to be passed on, whereas ones that don't, don't tend to get passed on. Mm -hmm. And so from a psychological perspective, it's traits that tend to promote our survival long enough to procreate tend to be passed on, whereas psychological traits that wouldn't don't. For example, um, we have a lot of people who are anxious, and there's a reason for that. If we go back to cavemen and women, people who heard a noise in the middle of the night and started freaking out were more likely to survive because they'd catch that saber-toothed tiger and run from it. Whereas the guy that was like, like oh, whatever, (laughs) it's probably nothing. I've got to go back to sleep. He's dead. He's not passing on genes to
0: anyone. (laughs) He's dead. He is gone. He's been removed from the gene pool. Caveman uh, analogies are probably my favorite analogies.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He's dead. Yeah, he's gone. So that's why I think a lot of us are anxious now, even though we don't face threats like we used to that are life-ending. At least not all of us all the time.
0: So, so wait, for, for, I'm a ahead. little so with, with you're, you're saying that because we don't um, attack more and because we don't have a lot more confidence based on our ancestors, we struggle more with anxiety. Well, anxiety
1: is evaluation of a threat. It is saying there's a threat and my whole body needs to be activated to deal with that threat. And so people who were more likely to observe and catch threats in caveman and cavewoman eras were more likely to survive than people who dismissed the very real threats they faced. Interesting. And so that got passed on. The challenge then is we don't have saber tooth tigers. We don't regularly have animals attacking us like in our suburban homes.
0: But that part still exists, hmm. right? Well, let me throw and, a curveball at you. Um, okay. I've never struggled with anxiety my entire life until COVID. And mm-hmm. then, because I mean, I, I, I've i been in intense situation. You know, I was first responder. You know, the anxiety wasn't a thing I had to deal with really. If anything, it was a little bit of PTSD and I dealt with it and called yeah. it good. Um, but until COVID, I was good. During mm-hmm. the middle of when I had COVID real bad, I had the, my first panic attack, anxiety attack, worst ever experience in my life. Um, and even today, I still have these anxiety attacks where I can't sleep, my heart's racing. Um, it just comes out of nowhere, out of the blue. So, that's not really a, a perception issue. It's a something that's attacked the central nervous system, right? So, how do you correlate that idea, perception, and um, what you perceive as a threat or not to somebody like me who's never really struggled with it and then all of a sudden COVID happens and now I have it pretty regularly.
1: I mean, I think I would say two things. One is they're going to be individual variations. Cause what we're looking at with evolutionary psychology is like a population level change as opposed to individual. Okay. However, what I would say is, um, I I say this whenever I'm working with students who are trying to learn to do addictions counseling, Mm -hmm. I say the reason you started drinking isn't always the reason you keep drinking. Right. So some people they start because it's like, I had a really stressful job, and that's the only way I knew how to deal with it. Right. I'm sure as a first responder, you've certainly run to people who yeah. maybe overindulge because it's like, how else am I gonna get to sleep after? Yeah, that was, shift, yeah right? that was
0: that was me for a while.
1: But then, like, maybe your situation changes but you keep drinking because it's then become a pattern. Yeah. I think anxiety can be the same way. Like if you're not anxious about COVID or at least at at the very beginning, I would say then something's wrong with you. Like that (laughs) is the appropriate response. There's a, my, uh, my wife is an infectious disease physician. So like this is her thing. And, Huh. Whenever I would ask her about a medical thing, even if it wasn't her specialty, she'd be able to rattle off statistics <laughs> and studies and be like, oh, well, this, but this and this. And when I'd ask her about COVID, she's like, we don't know. We don't <laughs> yeah. know. Yeah, We don't know. Like she was um, on a COVID team in the county hospital and they were trying these experimental treatments. And she's like, I don't know if this works or if it's just a placebo effect. Wait, JPS? Uh, wait, I'm sorry. What,
0: what, what hospital did your wife work at? Oh,
1: she works at uh Parkland.
0: Oh, okay. I just had the Parkland ER director on the show.
1: Oh, okay. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah.
0: So she's, a lot of connections there. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. So, um, and her main thing is HIV, but she's been dealing with COVID and all this stuff. That's super and, interesting. And so all, all that all to, that's to say, <laughs> yeah. Um, if you're anxious about COVID, it makes sense, but what happens and we find this with trauma we find this with anxiety is your brain gets into a a cycle where it continues to feel that way without having resolved the issue so it's almost like the two parts of your brain the part that's receiving actual information and the parts that's having an emotional response it's like they're being cut off from each other so hmm. that they can't process and reintegrate.
0: Do you think there's a physiological response?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And like that's one thing. The reasons for these these types of anxiety. So, like maybe COVID kind of severed those ties and that's why a lot of people and in, interstitutes are showing it's what, 30 or 40% of the population now have uh, central nervous system issues that leads to anxiety and depression. So, do you think no, like COVID yeah. could have separated that?
1: I think, that plays into it. I think the isolation plays into it yeah. because you're sitting at home, and you're just stewing in your own thoughts. You you're not having as many people being like, "Wait, wait, wait, wait Caleb, you're talking crazy talk. Let's reel it back in, right?" Um, especially because so many people are anxious, right? Mm. If you were around people. Cause you know, normal everyday life, we're around some people who are anxious, but we also have our friends who are a little more even keel. We'd have something to balance us, hmm. but you're just like, I have been taking COVID very seriously because I want to protect myself, but also everyone else I'd come in contact with. So I've left the house to take out the trash and pick up groceries <laughs> from my doorstep. And that's pretty much all, all the times I've left the house, right? Um, I only leave when I need to. And so as a result, I'm not having contact with people that might normally be like, Hey, like (laughs) time to calm down. Time to be a little less anxious.
0: Well, it's kind of, it's kind of been the opposite for me though, because like, it's not necessarily a, uh, a, issue for me to talk to people it's actually mm-hmm. more of an issue well okay let me let me backtrack it's more of an issue for me to to be around people than it is to be by myself being by myself mm-hmm. is actually when i'm 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 more chill and it, there's mm-hmm. it's not really like i try to think about the things that occur when i have these anxiety attacks like in my own in my own head mm-hmm. and i'm not really struggling with uh Thought processes—I have a pretty good firm foundation on the world, how I view things. I'm not stewing a whole lot. Uh, it just kind of acutely happens, you know. And so it's—it's it's a very interesting thing that I still ha- haven't been able to really fix much. It, it's helped when I've started taking probiotics uh, to kind of mm-hmm. kind of heal my gut biome. Because I think so, there's a lot of interesting thing research yeah. that goes into anxiety with the gut. Um, but it's yeah, all that to say, it's—it's it's weird. Well, one thing that I think is interesting um
1: is the idea of anxiety and the difference between implicit and explicit memories. So an explicit memory is something that you have declarative knowledge of and you can share, like, okay, yeah, I got in a car accident while I was listening to this song. So every time that song comes along, I get anxious. Yeah. Right. So you're like, okay, that makes sense. Like Well, it doesn't make sense, but at least I can't explain why it happens, right? Implicit memories are memories that hang out like in your amygdala and they're in the background there, but you can't necessarily say what set you off about something. Hmm. And so a lot of people will have – it might be someone reminds you in some vague way of your mother or father, and you find yourself reacting to them in similar ways. Interesting. And so I think that can explain a lot but like why do we why do we why am I reacting this way to this person? Um huh. I work a lot with students on that like does this person remind you of someone? They're like, "Oh, crap. Yeah. Mm. They do." And <laughs> now I wow. Um, there's this guy named Louis Cozzolino that wrote a book called The Neuroscience of Psychotherapy. Oh, I love he neuroscience. Said, he said, I, lo- I love this concept. He said, Mental dysfunction occurs because the brain is disintegrated. There are parts that should be connected that aren't. So huh. a lot of times we have our emotions over here and our logic over here, and never between shall they meet. But the fact is our emotions should be informed by logic and our logic should be informed by emotions. But you see with a lot of people with anxiety and trauma, those are separated. Like how many times have wow. you said, I know this is illogical, but this is how I'm feeling. Yeah. All right. Like well, every time I'm like, this
0: makes no sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so I love my job as a therapist is helping people connect those two Hmm. like how can we inform your thoughts through emotion because i think that's still important but also how can we tame your thought your emotions how can we educate your emotions
0: well that makes total sense because in my undergrad right now um i'm taking a class called the psychology of disaster and in it right now we're talking about how um, when disasters occur, how it affects children as a subpopulation, vastly different than adults. Yeah. And I started doing a little bit of research on neuroplasticity and how neuroplasticity really affects, uh, is affected by cortisol, which is our main stress yeah. hormone. And you talk about the amygdala. Well, the amygdala is v- greatly affected, you know, by yeah. trauma and because it's excreting a certain threshold of cortisol. And whenever cortisol is excreted during these, va- these massive trauma events, um, it severs those ties that you're talking about and actually prevents neurons from growing and creating new memories. It actually stops that, that host from, um, increasing in that area. So it makes sense that some people have these separations between what may be a logical explanation versus an emotional explanation because of something that occurred maybe a long time ago that severed that tie. That makes complete sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, which is why I think
1: so many of us out there are struggling, um, there was a this is sort of a, a little bit of a, a rabbit trail, but I think interesting. I love so, rabbit trails, so continue. <laughs> so a lot of people, when they hear about Freud, they're like, loved cocaine, obsessed with sex, real weird. Right? Those are our takeaways. <laughs> so there was this story, and it it's apocryphal, so I don't know how true it is, but feels true. So I'll <laughs> go with it. Um, they said that Freud, when he First started developing his theories, felt like hysteria and all these other things were caused by sexual abuse. And he went to like the authorities of the day and they're like, You're crazy, Sig. Like, <laughs> there's no way there's that much sexual abuse happening. Like, go back to the drawing board and come up with another theory. And then, you know, I would say they were super wrong because we look and we see like as a therapist, if I haven't talked to someone that's been physically, emotionally, verbally, or sexually abused in the course of a month, it's because I've taken a month off. Mm. Like, I, and I'm not someone who necessarily started out being like a trauma therapist, but yeah. it is so prevalent. Oh, yeah. Like, it's hard to meet someone who hasn't experienced. And some kind of
0: trauma with this increase in what you are saying is, is a tr- trauma for all these individuals including myself how like is that something that we're just not being aware of or is that something that has always been there that we've never dealt with
1: i would say it's something well both it's always both been there. <laughs> yeah but it's getting worse because mm-hmm. um we're seeing more and more how much conflict there is and how much violence there is, but it's been there for a long time. Do you uh, uh, REM therapy? I use EMDR therapy and I am now an apologist for EMDR. Oh really? I thought it was a bunch of hooey, that's uh, so like, why well, I've got to just wave, yeah. <laughs> wiggle my fingers in front <laughs> of you and you're going to get better, whatever dude. <laughs> um, but I've found it to be very effective. And more efficient than talk therapies. Now that's just my anecdotal evidence, but I've had people with complex trauma that I'm like, normally it would take a year, maybe two, to get to a, a good place. I've seen people in three to four months Godly. be like, I I think I'm good. I think I'm Right to stop therapy. Okay. So then
0: let's talk about that. Cause I, the very first time I heard it was with uh, a, a friend of mine. He was dealing with some things um, in their past and the therapist used this approach and it, it brought things to the forefront that he had no idea, you know, yeah. so explain what it is um, and how it works.
1: Okay. So it was developed by this woman named Frances Shapiro in the eighties. And what happened was, she was taking a walk one day and thinking about something that was really upsetting her. And she noticed as she was doing it, her eyes were flitting back and forth. And then she knows after her walk that she felt better and wasn't as bothered by this really upsetting event. <laughs> and so. EMDR is uh, it, it definitely has some flavor of cognitive behavioral therapy, but it says that there are these different elements that occur with every trauma. Okay. So there is the target. So the thing that's actually upsetting, there's an image that either represents the worst part of it or best represents the trauma. There's a cognition And usually it's a belief about yourself, your environment and the world as a result of that trauma. So for some people it's, I'm defective. This is why I was sexually abused is there was something wrong with me as opposed to there was something wrong with the person who hurt me. I'm responsible. If I had done something differently, then this wouldn't have turned out this way. It's the I shouldn't have been wearing that dress. I shouldn't have been that drunk as if that excuses the yeah. attack. Or it's the um powerlessness. This is happening and there's nothing I can do and so I'm powerless in life. Um and then there's the emotions, which obviously love emotions come up with trauma yeah. and even ones that don't make sense. Um And then their physical sensations. Some people, when they talk about their trauma, they can feel their throat tightening, Hmm. just like maybe if they were someone who was choked or maybe yeah, uh, you being a first responder, like say you were just out and about and had a heart attack. And that was really scary. That's traumatic in of itself. And Hmm. you might find yours, Chest tightening, not because you're having heart problems, but because, oh, no, this same thing happened. My trauma is getting
0: reactivated. So is it kind of are these all subconscious protections?
1: I mean, yeah, there's um, I mean, some of them are just responses, but it's our brains way of trying to make sense of like, what's going on here? Huh. Why did this happen? And so you sort of think of there are these two different aspects of your daily life there's the trauma life inside of you and there's normal life and you don't want trauma life to start intruding on everyday life because then people think you're weird. (laughs) Right. And so you have these defenses that, that try to mollify that trauma while not letting it impact your normal life. So one example is shame, right? Um, A lot of kids, when they were abused as a kid, they're like, well, there are only two options. Either I had bad parents and I was a good kid or I had good parents and I was just a bad kid. And that's the way you treat bad kids. So they have shame. So that helps them from having this trauma response of I want to attack someone who reminds me of my parents. I want to scream at them like I wanted to back then. If I feel shame, then I'd say, it was clearly my fault. Therefore, I shouldn't act this way towards this person. Hmm. Which, completely illogical, but also kind of logical. Yeah, like, I get where you're going, even though it's not necessarily helpful. So how so, is... Oh, go ahead. So we've got all that stuff going on with EMDR. And uh, the woman who trained me had this great way of talking about EMDR. She said... EMDR is when you, the therapist and the client both step out of the way so the brain can do the work. And so sure. there are a couple different phases in the EMDR. The first one w- where most people spend time is the desensitization phase. And so basically you use something called bilateral stimulation. So the classic one is moving your eyes back and forth as you follow a therapist's hand. But we found you can use tactile. I'll sometimes have people tap alternating feats, hmm. uh, things What's like that. that? Um, it is still under investigation, but it's found that when you do bilateral stimulation, it tends to remove the stress and decrease the amount of emotions you have about that target memory.
0: So do you and, have the target memory and then do that?
1: Yeah. So you, you say, hold this in your mind and then do that. Okay. Um, and just a brief aside for anyone listening, don't do this without a therapist. <laughs> so I know there are some people who are like, hey, how me you taught me this? Can I do this at home like all the time? I'm like, no, um, because what can happen is you can get stuck there and you need a therapist to be like, okay, let's let's bring you back down to where you're in the current space and time where you actually are and yeah. stuck, but um, one thing that I've seen clients describe it as it's like, you have a photograph of your trauma and all the color starts to drain out of it. So it doesn't erase huh. the memory but it's not really charged anymore.
0: Well, it seems like a lot of people also have these issues. I, again, a lot of people, me myself included, um, where they they haven't processed something. They've come in, their brain has hidden it back away. And EMDR therapy helps you bring it forward. So you can finally process it, almost grieve in a good way. Am I right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I mean, I think that's a great point you bring up because a lot of people, it's like, i feel feel like this is a very texas kind of way of approaching trauma i'm reminded of uh my wife and i used to love the show king of the hill oh yeah (laughs) and one of the characters is like well what you do is you take your feelings and you push them deep down inside (laughs) it'll hurt a little bit that's how you know it's working (laughs) and like that's how we deal with trauma is like if um if it's not bothering me right now, to my knowledge, then it can't be hurting me.
0: Well, that's a huge deal issue right now with first responders, um, whether it be cops. I know from my EMS side, from private EMS side of things, it was very much, you know, if you can't handle it, then you're not built for this field. And so there wasn't a whole lot of time or place for uh, a debriefing for a lot of these yeah. private ambulance EMS 911 call type situations. And it was very much a push down, suck it up move on to the next call.
1: Which I find problematic, and I'll give a metaphor to explain uh, why I think that's problematic. Um, it would be like if you were driving your car. Actually, this happened to my mother when she was first learning to drive. She had a Ford Mustang back in the '70s, Ooh. and she drove it. And one day, like it was months and months after she'd been driving it, she had to pull over, and like just smoke was coming up from. Her car and they're like what's going on and the mechanic took a look at it's like you have literally driven your car so much that the oil isn't bad it's gone it's all (laughs) evaporated so that was like your pistons creating so much friction they were smoking so to me telling a first responder if you can't deal with it without talking about your feelings would be like saying well Car, if you can't like drive without oil, maybe you're just not cut out to be a car. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like no, that's huge. Maintenance is an, is a huge thing. And it's true for humans just as much as machines.
0: And I'm not sure it's like that for every area or every state or, or every municipality. I just know that um, a lot of the places that I've, and people that I've talked to have all experienced, I know I've experienced this. Um, and I also don't know if it's the same like that for firefighters. Cause I think that's also department specific. I just know from my experience in private EMS and a lot of other people in private EMS. I mean, suicide rates are through the roof yeah. for for first responders, especially private EMS. Well, and what
1: we're seeing is not so much like organizational as cultural, like mm-hmm. what is the culture of first responders? And I, and again, I'm talking to someone outside that system. Yeah, but I think it's going to need to have a cultural shift to be able to talk about things, to be able to um, get counseling and also not be stigmatized. Yeah. Um, I talked with a few people who were veterans and they said, I would talk to the priest before I talked to the counselor. Cause you talk to the priest, that's under the seal of confession. Hmm. That's private. You talk to the counselor, it's going to go in your jacket. And then when you try to get your next promotion, it's going to be a problem. Uh, oh yeah. Or, you know, you think about working in EMS or being a police officer. Now there's some police officers who, in addition to being courageous, doing their job are courageous and go to therapy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. But I can certainly imagine there's some that if they went, went to therapy, they'd be like, I don't want to tell my partners. Cause they're going to be like, is that guy going to snap? Yeah. Cause that's the view is you're, you've got to be crazy to go to a therapist. Whereas, yeah the bold claim I'll make is you've got to be crazy not to be
0: going to one. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a, I really wish we could see, cause I also worked at, in the trauma center in the, in the, in Fort Worth at JPS Mm -hmm. and there was a, the the mental health and the overall health of people on the emergency side of things in general are just poor. Like there's Mm -hmm. just not a whole lot of, things that people are encouraging for holistic health. You know, it's very much like go, 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 go. You can't stop. And then I can't, can't, I can't, I mean, it was almost every shift where, you know, I mean, it's a great place to work. I learned so much and I loved it. Um, Learned so much, like I said, but it was very busy, very hectic. And I'm talking about overall as a society in the medical field, the ER side of things, the emergency side of things, whether it's first responder or inside the emergency room, the overall health is just very poor. And we don't mm-hmm. we don't push for eating right, um, having breaks to be able to take a breath, uh, working out and exercising, you know, having 150 minutes a week just in back exercise those Those things are so beneficial and, and increase longevity exponentially. But we don't talk about it because we're America. We don't have enough time.
1: <laughs> when I think of, uh, I got married to my wife when she was in the middle of her medical residency. Oof. And during that time, <laughs> they had just made things easier for residents, which meant yeah. they could only work 80 hours a yep. week. I know it. And, uh, you know, 30-hour thirty, shift, 30 hour shift max, I'm
0: like, you yep. guys know that's still not healthy. Yeah. Like, that's going to kill you. Well, that's infectious disease even. And that's not even including general surgery or trauma surgery. The trauma oh, surgery gosh. residents that I worked with, man, they're I mean, they'd be on like two hours of sleep before he emerged in surgery. Like,
1: okay. <laughs> well, and then the people that went through that, they still got looked at as like by the old guard, like you, you dang kids, yep. like with your cushy eighty-hour week. Yep. Back in my day, we worked one hundred and twenty hours and loved it.
0: Yep. Like, well there's, a, well, there's a really interesting thing you just point out because there was another researcher I had on towards the beginning of my show. Um, she's an assistant professor at TCU and, and works with the medical uh, school and residents there. She was talking about how a lot of people in the research, there's a lot of, there's an old guard kind of phasing out. I've noticed that in academia, I've noticed that in a lot of uh, other spheres of life where even police, where the old guard is kind of phasing out and there's a new guard, hopefully it's better Um, That Mm -hmm. and a lot of these old ideas of uh, good old boy mentality of promotions and um, even how what research projects go through and get published and become popular is very much who you knew back in the Mm -hmm. day. Am I right? Because that's kind of. Yeah, that's kind of what she brought up.
1: I think one of the challenges we have with old guard and new guard is sometimes to survive as a researcher, as a doctor, as a clinician, you internalize and convince yourself you believe those toxic beliefs that the old guard wanted to believe. So you think of it, um, gender relations. That's obviously changing a lot. Yeah. But there are some women who have internalized very negative views towards women, anti-feminist views, because that's what you had to do to survive with the old good old boy system. Huh? And so... It's not just representation, although that's huge, it's representation and making sure we're having a full dialogue about, like, how do we help people be healthy? How do we recognize and build up new clinicians and researchers who are persons of color who are um, not just old white men and all these different things? Um, So there's a really full discussion. But... I am hoping that our culture is going to
0: bend towards positive change and that's really cool. So you talked, uh, back to, uh, the rapid eye movement therapy, Mm -hmm. you talked about the phase one, kind of bringing Mm -hmm. it up. Um, then kind of doing the bilateral stimulation. What's phase two phase two is installing
1: positive beliefs. So for instance, if you have the negative belief, I am essentially a damaged person. And that's why this happened to me. Like, it's not enough just to say, okay, I don't believe that. We have to replace that with something. Mm -hmm. And it's not this Pollyanna like, oh, everything's perfect, right? But what's realistic? And so a thought I might help a client install with that is, I'm not a bad person. A bad thing happened to me, right? So it's a realistic thought and seeing like, can I actually believe
0: that about myself? Hmm. So why does doing these type of eye movement therapies, why does it work? We, we know that it does work. It almost unlocks different parts of the brain that our mm-hmm. brain has hidden and protected ourselves from, but why? <sighs>
1: That's um, an issue of some controversy. So there's not like a solid. Ooh, I this love controversy. Because <laughs> some people are like, well, do you even need the bilateral stimulation? Um, and that's if you look up like the APA's events-based division, that's one yeah. thing they brought up. Some one thing that's been suggested is it might have something to do with rapid eye movement phases in sleep. And how maybe it's processing the same way we process detritus from our day in dreams. Mm. Um and certainly, we see sleep as being this alt- alternating phases of REM, which is sort of processing, and then um, non-REM sleep, which is more that sort of healing, tissue regeneration type sleep. Hmm. So um, that That's would cool. be my guess, but still more research needs to be done Always. to really figure I'll, that at out.
0: At the end of every research project, more research yeah. needs to be done. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So how much do you know about like the alpha brainwaves and gamma brainwaves and all those spectrums of the brainwaves that affect how we process things?
1: I mean, I know a little bit. I think, well, here's something important for EMDR. You have to have your foot in two different spaces for EMDR to work. So... If you are, ex- you need to experience the past as if it were the present without losing the as if piece. So you have to be re-experiencing some of the past, but knowing you're in the present. And in terms of brain waves, I think it's important to be able to step between those two, Oof. because sometimes you need to be like at that higher level of consciousness and function. Oof. And sometimes you need to be able to step down, you know, downshift a little bit to be like, okay, let's get to a little more of that subconscious level
0: of process. Dive into that because you've you've referenced consciousness a lot lately. Can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit more about consciousness and kind of the levels of consciousness, consciousness, as well as why psychedelics bring you in and out of different consciousnesses?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, sort of the classic Freudian approach is we've got the conscious, which is stuff that we're currently experiencing, currently thinking. Then we've got pre-conscious, which is stuff that's there, but think of it like um, stuff that's in your glove box when you're driving to work. It's there if you need to find it, but it's not like floating all around your car. And then we've got stuff on the unconscious. And there are lots of different... Um, reasons why and different theorists will say different reasons why something might be in your unconscious so Wait, when you some, mean uh, when you mean unconscious are you
0: meaning like subconscious
1: subconscious yeah okay. a lot of times they're used um simultaneously yeah okay um and so those are basically things that we don't have access to so one reason might be that it was pre-verbal some theorists say that you need verbal language to be able to encode those memories um other people will say trauma gets put there because it's too difficult to hang out in the conscious and pre-conscious all the time right
0: well, well can't coding also be passed down by your uh, parents and their parents through epigenetics, because you're more predisposed to certain things based on on hereditary traits that are passed down. And I wonder if some of these subconscious thoughts and experiences could be passed down to generations, you know, in the future.
1: No, absolutely. I think um, coping mechanisms, you know, as much as we like to think we're free and rugged individualists. I think every person once they hit around 30 to 40 has opened their mouth and heard their parents speak and they're <laughs> like oh my god i promised myself i'd never be like that dude i'm already but there Here man. i am yeah <laughs> right and so certainly i think some of that like how we deal in our coping mechanisms can certainly be handed down through mm. genetics and epigenetics um And there's some uh, Jung would say, like, when something happens that's not consistent with our view of ourself, then sometimes it gets relegated to the unconscious because it's like that doesn't fit with who I think I am. That's interesting. So I'm going to put there and you even think about um, eyewitness testimony, most unreliable form of testimony, because after you tell a story so many times. You actually start to believe it happened that way, even if it didn't.
0: Well, that's a huge um, issue, even right now, um, when we talk about, we talk about witnesses. Like biases are inherent. Like you can't. Everybody's yeah. biased in some way. As much as you want to be unbiased, like your very genetic code. Like we're talking about genetics. Mm-hmm. Your very genetics say that you can't. Like there's, even though you can try and get rid of biases, um, you're already inherently biased. Buy- you, it, it's almost impossible, in, even in journalism, as we talk journalism or, um, policing, you have biases that it's very hard to get rid of. Absolutely. And, uh, when I talk, uh, cause I've been
1: training counselors for the past decade and I say, it's not a matter of you getting rid of your baggage. It's you knowing where your baggage is. So it, you don't trip over it.
0: Ooh. Cause Bruh, you got some
1: great, like one-liners, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, what i've i was counting it up just to be curious because i like i love stats and being able to be like oh i've done this so i've probably spent between one to two thousand hours teaching and lecturing
0: so oh wow get a lot of time to hold my awesome. material that's perfect man i think i think some of the most interesting people to talk to are teachers because they still have the heart of a learner yeah absolutely um yeah and so You
1: know, with all this sort of unconscious, there's a lot of stuff we don't want to face. And like, rightly so, like, it's not fun. Like, um, if counseling was purely fun, I wouldn't charge you to do it. And it wouldn't be so hard to get, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's, yeah. (laughs) I worked with this marketing agency and they said, counseling is the second hardest thing to sell. The first hardest thing is life insurance because you have to face your own mortality to want to buy it. But counseling, it's basically like, hey, well, here's how I would explain it. It would be like, hey, so you've got this problem, Caleb. What I'm going to do is we're going to schedule an hour appointment. I'm going to punch you in the face for an hour. And then we're going to do that for like six months to a year, and then you'll be better. I'm also (laughs) going to charge you 130 an hour to do that. So
0: can we go ahead and set up your first appointment? Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, again, there's a stigma. We talked about that before. Mm-hmm. There's a stigma on going to a counselor and, and seeking help. When in reality, that stigma is hopefully some of that old guard, even in society. This is, We talked about leaders earlier, yeah. how they influence people under them. I think a lot of people have been influenced by the old guard, um, by their predecessors, even old guard's predecessors mm-hmm. that show or that have taught that that's not a good thing to do. And in reality, we do need to get help. We do need to make sure our mental health is okay and that we can process things in a good way.
1: Absolutely, and I don't think there's a job. Maybe there's a job somewhere, but I don't think there's a job where you're not experiencing a trauma of some kind, whether it's big T or little T. Like if you're in the service industry, you have as absolutely been traumatized by a customer. Mm. There's there's no possibility yeah. of that. To you know what? If you're in business, like people would be like, oh, I count, they probably have experienced trauma what if you're a manager at your firm and you have to let people go like Mm -hmm. to me that would be traumatic telling someone like you need to clear your stuff
0: out and destroy their lives or keep away keep from providing from their family that'd be a hard thing to Ooh.
1: yeah so i don't think that you can get through this life without some kind of trauma
0: well that's what i really struggled with before because i before uh, when somebody explained that they had ptsd i kind of I was like, yeah, no, you don't. You you weren't in war times. Like yeah. war times is PTSD. You know, did you get hit by an IED or did your brother or sister die from a bullet that wasn't meant for them in, in wartime Iraq? Yeah, That's what I would initially assume as accurate PTSD. But the more I learned the more I realized how the littlest things can set somebody off and actually cause the same exact symptoms of PTSD as a wartime hero or a wartime person who, you know, was... On the front lines. It's the exact same type of thing.
1: It's interesting. Uh, there's this, uh, couple who does, um, they're big in the couples counseling world called the Gottmans. And they did this research with this, uh, I believe the researcher's name was Sharon Glass and they looked at what causes affairs to happen. And one of the things they found is that finding out your partner had an affair creates symptomology, very similar to PTSD. Hmm. And so, which makes sense. Like it's someone that you've shared your life with and it's a betrayal. Yeah. Right. But I think, again, not to diminish, like finding out your partner had an affair is different than seeing your best friend die in front of you. Like, I'm not going to um, diminish that or say that there aren't different levels, but we've all experienced a kind of interpersonal hurt where we've been scared, where we've lost a relationship in its current form. And the sooner we get to a place where we acknowledge and want to work through that, the better society will
0: be. So why is it that some social groups and some people groups are very good at processing things like that and other social groups, like the littlest thing, it's like the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back, like the snap of a finger and they're in the gutters. So why it's like, I think it's actually the study of resilience, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely
1: part of it. Um, One of the things we look at is especially people who have been through trauma, like for instance, people who grew up in homes where alcohol was abused, they get a one, two punch because they get all the bad stuff that happens with having an alcoholic parent. And then they also don't get all the positive coping skills. that are usually modeled by parents Displayed to them. Right. So it's not just when my dad got angry, he threw chairs at people. It's when my dad got angry, he threw chairs at people and I never saw him use meditation. Mm. Right. So it's interesting. It's that we also have this thing called the diathesis stress model. Um Sounds diathesis- fancy. <laughs> Diathesis is just a $64 word for genetic predisposition. Okay. So some people are more disposed to mental health disorders than others. Yeah. Um, And you're more, if your parents had a, uh, or a other first degree relative had mental health disorder, you're more likely to have one. And so we've got that and different people have different levels of that. And then different people have different levels of stress. So say someone is like super predisposed to depression it might not take that much for them to, hmm. to go to flip over kind of break. versus someone may be really not predisposed to it, but you've been through a lot of stress. Yeah. Now the other thing, this is, there's an interesting study they did about panic attacks. So what they did is they gave these people this like big red button and they would hit it whenever they were going to have, a, they felt like they were having a panic attack, but they also hooked, them up to a heart rate monitor and O2 saturation monitor. And what they found was people's O2 sats dropped and their heart rate jumped up an hour before they hit the I'm having a panic attack what? button. And yeah. So like oh, when I work with people with panic attacks, I'm like, we need to look at not when you're having a panic attack. We need to go like an hour back and start Whoa. doing stuff there. Huh. And so in the same way, People who you're saying like, oh, they just sort of like break. It's because maybe they broke like a week ago, a month ago, but they're just now dealing with it.
0: Um, dude, that's huge. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's amazing. I, that's a really good way to think about it. Cause we're so focused on the here and the now, and that's just American society. We don't, we don't look at in the future and we don't look in the past. A lot of times we just deal with what's in front of us, which some of that's good, but yeah. a lot of that can be pretty bad. Like we're talking about now where we don't know where origins of something has actually occurred.
1: Yeah, I um, My wife, one of her loves is she loves watching plane crash documentaries. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so she she has a little bit of flight anxiety. And so it's like, oh, if I learn as much as possible. And I love there was this one where one, there was like the, it's always a perfect storm. So if anyone has flight anxiety, it's never one thing. It's always mm-hmm. like 20 things that came together. But there's this one I watched with her and it was like there was this flaw in the metal that was forged to to create this special like piece of machinery. And it was messed up from the beginning. But it wasn't until like flight hour, you know, two hundred and seventy five that it (laughs) hit a breaking point and then the plane crashes. Right. And so I think the same is true for us as humans. And we tell ourselves, I can keep on going. And huh. um, I, I'm going to go a little bit of a tangent about self-care. Because I get annoyed when people talk about self-care in the wrong way. Okay. People talk about self-care like it's white out. Like, Caleb, go on a vacation. And then all your worries will just go away. And I'm mm-hmm. like, that is not how life works. Because when I get back from a vacation, if something was stressing me out, It's still still there. (laughs) Yeah, it's still there. And so I think of self-care should be preventive maintenance. Mm -hmm. What are the things I'm doing to release the pressure valve to make sure that that flaw, that system doesn't get so stressed, it falls apart under pressure? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's that same thing of like, okay, let's take a look at how things are going. Are things going well? How can I um, relieve the pressure? Another mm-hmm. way to think of it is like your family budget, right? Mm-hmm. People like to think it's the big ticket items that hurt your family budget. Nope. But it's the small stuff. It's like, oh, it's – I I subscribe to three different yep. subscriptions. services. <laughs> That's what gets me. Oh, my God. I forgot that I subscribed to the Dallas Morning
0: News yep. online. Oh, it's been that there for so long, Right. No, literally today I had something charged from my account that I didn't know I had that I thought I deleted a year ago. It was $119 and it was a subscription for something for school or something like that. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I thought I canceled this. But it's those type of things.
1: Yeah. And it's the same sort of things like um, as your listeners think about this, think about like your commute time. Like we've research shows if you have a longer than 30 minute commute, um, then that's going to negatively impact your life. Think about how many arguments you have with your spouse. Yeah, and one could, thing I, go ahead. I work with couples a lot is like, you shouldn't be avoiding arguments, but how can you have a good argument as opposed yeah. to a knockdown drag out? So all those different things I think are
0: important to look at. I know those are those are really good blanket statements, but it's interesting because my wife, um, she drives 45 minutes to work and it's rush hour traffic. You know, she works a normal eight to five job and uh, she's always in, in traffic. But it, it, for her, it actually... Does the opposite effect a lot of times? Now, traffic can be stressful, but she turns on music, and because it's a long drive, it helps her decompress.
1: No, and I think that's a because I right now my commute is 90 minutes each way. Ooh. So, oh um, really? I've, I live in Dallas, okay. um, but I commute to Waco and yeah. then like southwest, southeast, southwest of Fort Worth. Oh my and gosh. So, I've always whatever job I've had, like the shortest commute I've had is like, well, I did have a job where it was like a five minute commute, but that other that than doesn't that, count. like <laughs> half an hour to like hour and a half. Oh. And I think we find ways to reclaim the time, but you know, an hour in the car is still time. You have to spend somewhat alert yeah, and it's still energy that gets expended. yeah. And so I encourage people to think about, where are you expending energy and what how can you try to reclaim that what can you do to just acknowledge like this this sucks yeah. and this is hard because a think- lot of times you're like oh it, this is just what it is." build a bridge and get over it
0: yeah and that's that old guard mentality that we kind of got to get rid of um you know i think there's a lot of things that our body and our mind can do that we still haven't tapped into and that we still haven't really learned how to do that like I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but it's called the gateway experience. It was developed by the CIA in the 1960s. Of course, the sixties, the era of, of consciousness and LSD. And (laughs) well, they, uh, they try, they were trying to create super soldiers and you can actually look up the actual documents that were declassified not long ago. And it's called the gateway experience where they, they're trying to make super soldiers to almost do telepath, telepathic things. Mm -hmm. Um, They're trying to make these guys just, lit oh, yeah, like the mk ultra
1: and yes, all that yeah. Sort of stuff. yeah so it's, it's in
0: that same era i don't think it was still part of mk ultra but it was around okay. the same thing uh well they actually found that when they started doing things like uh, what's it called holotropic breathing you've heard of that where yeah, you're, yeah. you're in a room and you know you're breathing for four hours as as intense as you can listening to the most intense music as you can and those type of of breathing techniques were actually unlocking parts of the brain that they had never accessed before. And it was just like mimicking like an LSD trip, going deeper into different areas of your mind and subconscious that normally you couldn't. So I guess my question is for you, do you think that accessing these parts of your brain and your mind and your conscious are a good thing, a bad thing? Should we pursue it? Or is this going to be something that happens, you know, in a genetic way, a thousand years, or an evolutionary way, a thousand years from now?
1: Um, okay. So there are a few parts yeah, to that. I know. Um, I love I love these type of no, questions.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so one question here is, like, is, are these going to open up new vistas in the human experience? Short answer is, I don't think so. Okay. But I'm going to haven't added um, sort of rabbit trail and I'll use this metaphor that my wife shares about vitamin C. Okay. Cause she's like, what do you do whenever you get sick? Right. You just like, Mm -hmm. and she said, you're not vitamin C only helps you when you're deficient in vitamin C. And if you live in a developed country and you're not like an 1800s pirate, then you're probably good to go on vitamin C. So it's about deficiency as opposed to having so much more. And so I think what we're looking at is we have divorced our minds from our body for so long. And really when we think about it, this started like with ancient Greek philosophers, right? <laughs> we see this idea that, um, you know, Oh, emotions are untamed beasts, And you need to search out cold logic. We also saw in the early Christian church, lots of dualists and Gnostics where they were like, the flesh is evil. The flesh has to be gotten rid of. Um, And so what I think we're going to see is not necessarily new vistas of consciousness. Maybe we will. I've been wrong before. But what I hope we will see is, that we start to reintegrate the mind and the emotion and the body, so that we see new vistas of health, mm. because we've cut ourselves off from our body so long that, uh, we'll give you for instance, how many times have you been past stressed out and you didn't realize it till you're like, oh, my shoulders have been up around my ears for like the past hour. Yep, yep. Or I went to my dentist the other day and he's like, you know, you grind your teeth like crazy. <laughs> we need to get you a mouth guard, and I'm like. Yep. That's the first time I've been told of this. Cool. <laughs> um, so I think it's about learning how do we get in touch with our body and let our body heal and let our, and pay attention to the messages our body is sent rather than saying later, yeah. later. Like it's a toddler that's annoying us.
0: How much do you think of that as cultural?
1: I think there's a big cultural piece to it. I think um, – part of it is sort of this company man company woman syndrome Mm. where it's like (laughs) burnout is not a badge of honor. Burnout is a medical condition. So stop it. Um, But we get this message like, Oh, I've, you know, I've gone so long without sleep. I've gone so long without this, almost sort of this warrior mentality when it doesn't make sense in peacetime to treat your body
0: like that. Well, do you think that people wear those types of badge of honors because they want to be known and set apart?
1: I think so. I think it also brings comes back to the very start of our conversation. By wearing that badge of honor, you get positive regard from the powers that be. Yeah. And so you're like, okay, this is this really hurts, but I'm getting recognition. I'm and getting affirmation.
0: That's cool. All right. So you, I've noticed going back to the earlier com- part yeah. of the conversation, you are, uh, you and your wife volunteer weekends with kids. You're, you're involved mm-hmm. and have for a long, the beginning of your career with a lot of child therapy mm-hmm. um, and play therapy. So talk to me a little bit, about the significance and importance of play in our children today and how that's been removed <laughs> from society, as yeah. well as how social media has affected that art of play.
1: Yeah. So one of the things I think is important is in the study of human development, which is basically how different human capacities unfold, is children are not just quantitatively different. They are qualitatively different. But we look at them and think they're just quantitatively different. There are some people who are like, well, kids are just shorter and not as smart as us. Therefore they need to get taller and smarter and then we can treat them like adults.
0: So can I break that rephrase that in a way that doesn't say qualitative and quantitative in a way that's (laughs) a little more practical. Okay.
1: So kids don't just need more brain power or more hype or more muscle power or more of this, the way they interact is completely different and they view the world differently, they solve problems differently, they communicate differently. Um, and so the challenge there is, okay, so you have kids, I don't know how old they are, but four and two. Okay, four and two, right? So your two-year-old has some language, probably not like a, a deep conversationalist, but can say <laughs> some words. Yeah. And so it would be a mistake to believe that just because that child has words, they're, they're comprehending language at the same level as you or I, yeah. because if that were true, we'd just give your kid a dictionary and be like, Hey, um, read that. And then when you're finished, <laughs> come out and we'll talk about Proust. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Like not gonna happen. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. And part of that is, I believe that play is the language of children. So, that is how they communicate, and it's also how they heal and rejuvenate. Um, and so there will be things a kid can't tell you via words, but they can tell you through play, huh. right? Um, one of the classic examples was uh, there was a team of play therapists that went to New York uh, right after 9-11 in 2001, And these kids, what they did is they would build these towers up, then take a toy airplane and knock them down and build them up and knock them down. Do this repetitive cycle, which a play therapist can look at and be like, that's trauma play. Yeah, they are going over the same thing over and over, trying to make sense of it. Whereas like it, they the kid couldn't be like. So Doc, here's the problem. <laughs> I, I've been traumatized. Um, i I really, my brain isn't at a place to process it. So if we could just talk, no, that's not where they're yeah. at. Yeah. And what we find is, um, and this is the real challenge: play has to be spontaneous. It has to be self-directed, huh. and that's the thing that our systems don't allow for, huh. right? Cause you think about, and I, I love our teachers, but um, you think about would a teacher be allowed to be like, Hey kids, just play. I don't <laughs> care if it relates to like this, the state mandated testing, just play. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. that, that doesn't happen. Um, there's this researcher named Peter gray that researches play. And he said, as we've seen play, disappear from schools we've seen neuroticism antisocial behavior basically anything that's bad we see more of because play has decreased um and we're talking about kids but play's important for us big people too (laughs) yeah um and you think about like we've forgotten how to play we've forgotten how to do something just cause it's fun. Like you think about a, a hobby you've taken up. Sometimes as adults we're like, well, but am I good at it? Mm. When really it should be. And again, this is that locus of control thing. Was well, this fun? Do I enjoy Did it? Did I enjoy it? Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, and so play therapy is a lot about provide, and especially um, the kind of play therapy I was trained in was child centered which is a non-directive approach is if I provide a certain type of relationship where I allow the child to play, where I am affirming to them, where I use, and we'll talk a little bit about this, where I use encouragement instead of praise, then they'll use that relationship and play to heal. Hmm. And so one challenge a lot of parents and adults have is praise versus encouragement praise is you did a good job here's a gold star whereas encouragement focuses on your process so for instance if a kid brought me a picture if i wanted to praise them i would say that's a really good picture johnny if i wanted to encourage them i'd say i noticed that you used a lot of different colors there and you even like mixed one together with the other to create this really different color And what you'll notice with kids is when you say good job, they'll go away and go about their business. When you encourage them, they start to be like, yeah, I did this and I wasn't sure this was going to work out. So I did this. Yeah. So it actually, it keeps the conversation going. Whereas praise is like, this is my final pronouncement. So we're done with this conversation.
0: So what does that do in the kid's brain?
1: So they actually did some studies. Uh, one of the things they found is that kids who received praise were less likely to take risks, like good risks. Oh, wow. So they gave these um, achievement tests to kids. And one group of kids, they gave praise. And one group of kids, they gave encouragement. And then they asked the kids, OK, so for the next part of the test, you can you can do some problems that are hard. But you might learn some things or be challenged, or you can do some easy ones. Kids who were praised chose the easy ones, where kids who are encouraged choose the hard ones hmm. and their performance. Actually, like some of the kids actually start out doing better and their performance decreased. Whereas the opposite wow. happened with encouragement.
0: Kids. Is it because with praise kids, they're getting that level of satisfaction and pleasure in their brain, whenever they get praised. Yeah. And that's why they, they want to get the fastest point A to point B. So if you give me a task. I want the immediate pleasure. So I'm going to choose the easiest task. While yeah. the people who the kids who are encouraged are getting pleasure through the process. Yeah,
1: absolutely. huh? Oh, and you think about like a, so one of my backgrounds is I was a testing guy. So I did IQ test and all that on kids. I'm not a fan of standardized testing in schools okay. uh, for a couple of reasons. But one is when you get like your kids test back, it's not like the teacher sits down. And is like, OK, so let's just have a chat about Johnny and his academic performance and capabilities. And here's the stuff he does really well at. Here's a, no, it's a, it's a minimum standard yeah. test test. You move forward or you don't move forward. Here's where you were in the percentile. But does it actually give you an understanding of your child? Mm -hmm. No. And so um, there's this approach to counseling in mental health called acceptance and commitment therapy. And uh, there's this uh, speaker who said, when we provide appetitive uh, reinforcers, so something that you want, people come up with lots of different ways to get that, right? Hmm. Um, you think of, okay, if if you have Halloween candy and you have hidden it in a drawer on top of the cabinet behind the refrigerator, your kids will find a way to get there. That. <laughs> That's just a delaying mechanism, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> but what we find is with aversive reinforcers, that reduces the number the behavioral repertoire so Hmm. if instead of hiding the candy you said hey um you need to do well on this test but son every time you don't do well i'm going to just uh, zap you with this cattle prod (laughs) which just fyi don't do that that's (laughs) like a cps issue but if you were to do that that pretty soon they would they would not take any chances because the more chances i take the more likely i'm to get something wrong. Mm-hmm. If I get something wrong, I'm gonna be hurt, right? Like, what yeah. I, I was talking about, this is with my wife the other day, as a kid, when you do well, they're like, okay, you're, you're done, go play. Whereas an adult, it's like, oh, you finished your job, Caleb? Here's more work. <laughs> it's like, oh, uh, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a sort of the same with standardized testing, right? Like, huh. hey, cool, so you, um, you won the uh, STARS test. So your reward is fourth grade. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't, maybe can I change some bubbles?
0: Uh, so what have you seen as a result of a lot of this? Have you seen just, or I guess we see today, have, have you noticed a lot of that, that population of children just, just kind of uh, being in their own world, not even pursuing, like what are some of the results?
1: Well, I think um, there's this excellent audiobook on uh, audible called millennial burnout. And so it's it's this idea that you do everything that you're told you should do to be successful. And then you get to a certain point and you're like, where's my gold star? Uh, Where's my or, you know, we're also a, just a financial thing where a lot of millennials have they went to college like they were told to they succeeded yeah. in college. And then they're like, so um, I'm going to be paying off my student loans till I'm 87. Mm-hmm. I am going to be living in a house with 17 roommates and I have. <laughs> 10 jobs five of them are unpaid internships yeah um non-funded but I did studies <laughs> yeah i did everything i was supposed to do why did it not turn out this way huh. or maybe they they picked uh, this was a challenge i ran into i started off college and i was going to be an accounting major because that's how you make money mm-hmm And then I fell asleep every day in managerial (laughs) accounting. It was just so boring. Um, I'm sorry to any accountants out there, but I was clearly not meant (laughs) to be an accountant. And I realized I could do what's safe. I could get a business degree. I could make money and boom, that's where we're at. Or I could do something that I enjoy, but might be a little more risky. So Mm -hmm. I got that just... Highly sought after and the lucrative degree of English literature, um, but I had to figure out what to do next. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and so I think that's a challenge a lot of people, a lot of kids are running into. We Risk also management. See, yeah, absolutely. And we also see a lot of challenge of just like test taking anxiety mm-hmm. is really high, especially when it's high stakes. Um, and so as a teacher, I try to wait test less. And performance is more. Yeah. Um. But that's that's not what we're seeing with um, standardized testing in
0: school. Well, that, that is what I like about the university of am right now. It's very discussion board oriented. It's very because I'm online, and so yeah. all most of my work is either through papers or uh, discussion boards where we have great discussions about you know neuroplasticity and <laughs> things like yeah. that. And I like those better because I, again, the test I like you're saying, it, it just doesn't make sense anymore to me there, I think there are some situations where the test is needed. Um, but how you're waiting your, how you grade your students, that sounds more practical and more plausible to success.
1: Well, yeah, I, um, uh, my wife, when I was studying for my licensure exam, she helped me and she was used to the medical school way yeah. of studying. Yep. And, um, she got well there are two things that There, one she was like you don't know this stuff you just know how to take tests well i'm like granted um but the other thing that she was like you could be a really bad counselor and do well on this test mm. i was like yeah you could yeah wow. um but i need to take this test so i can get a license
0: <laughs> which i feel like that's the mindset for grade school all the way through high school and college. You know, we just want to get past the test and we're not actually trying to learn practical things that are going to help our everyday love for life, our everyday success for life and our everyday overall satisfaction. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: You know, there was a book I read uh, called The Last Child in the Woods and it was talking about this very same thing. Have you heard heard of that book? I have not. No, I have to read that. Oh, dude, it's. It literally changed my view and perspective on how we raise our children. We actually bought a house specifically for a, a bigger backyard because it has, I mean, I'm looking outside right now, we have trees that are, you know, 300 years old. We have a creek in the backyard and and we wanted a, like a, just a big enough backyard where the kids could go out and play by themselves and develop risk management techniques. And that was something this book brought up to me was how play um, has really been removed from every aspect of life, you know, everything from when you get up in the morning, go all the way through school, and then you get done, then you have these scheduled play dates with a scheduled session on how to play. And then sometimes it's not even that a lot of times it's just on TV or on iPads and watching shows. And he, correl- he correlated and connected all these aspects to uh, lack of risk management in kids, which reduces their confidence, which actually increases their chance of uh, not having risk management in a situation that's very, could be life-threatening like a kidnapping. Mm-hmm. And this guy actually, it was really interesting to me. He he connected the points where uh, stranger danger occurred and how stranger danger actually increased children's ability of being taken. Because by stranger danger, they've taken the kids and brought them into the home and said, you know, don't talk to strangers. Don't uh, deal with anybody you don't know, which a level that is safe. But by doing so, they did not learn how to assess the situation and see uh, when a situation might be more dangerous than another situation. And because they had didn't have that risk management and risk assessment technique, uh, the prevalence of kids' kidnappings actually increased during that era.
1: Well, I think the other thing about that and that whole era is it was predicated on a belief that wasn't really borne out by research. So we know now, when it comes to assault, your kid's more likely to know they're the perpetrator mm. than it happened by a stranger. Same thing with, um, Interesting. I, I grew up in the the era where there were DARE programs. And a <laughs> lot of the research they found about DARE is the it doesn't succeed. Um, the two things it does is it makes your kids more likely trust cops, but also increases their likelihood of taking drugs. Huh. Cuz you're exposing them to that. I remember yeah. when I was a kid, Pee Wee Herman would do PSAs about not doing crack cocaine and I was like, "Pee Wee, what is crack cocaine?" Maybe Let's I should do. Try some it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, absolutely. But I think also to your point like in in medicine there's this idea of the hygiene hypothesis mm. that if you keep your kid in a bubble they're not going to develop immunity to anything and so we need opportunities for experimentation and failure yeah for us to really succeed as a culture and we we treat failure like a dirty word when really i think it's the best teacher
0: Mm -hmm. so how much of this coddling mentality do you how do you process a lot of like the, the university campuses the college campuses, even just my generation Like Mm -hmm. we're, we're very coddled. Not going to lie. We have everything, um, given to us. I I agree that there needs to be some level of protection for students in hard situations. And, you know, again, removing that stigma for a lot of these issues. However, they're also not giving the chance to fail because they're all, all, everybody's getting an award. Yeah. And so that's a very loaded question. And I know that. Yeah, no,
1: no. Yeah. So there are a few things I think I'll touch on there. One is, um, I think that there needs to be room to fail without high stakes. Um, and so I think, cause if you, if you put every failure as a high stake situation, then I think that's problematic. However, I think one of the biggest challenges is people aren't made to face consequences.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, there should be results of your actions. And I think the more we face the results of our actions, the more we learn, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Here, okay, here's something that's my pet peeve. And I will tell students this. I have a lot of students who come in to their master's program and say, I am going to get a 4.0. And I will say, that's, Well, I won't, (laughs) sometimes I'll say this, sometimes I'll just think it, but I'll be like, that is a dumb goal and I won't help you at all.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Um, And I'll tell them, like, I I, I was a good student. So I got mostly A's in college and I can't tell you everything I learned from the A classes, but I can tell you that Dr. Jenny Adams at the University of North Texas gave me a C in Arthurian legend and I can remember why and I can remember more about the theory and the legend than I can about any of the other classes. Yeah. Um, and also failure, I'm, I'm working now, um, being a business owner, owning a practice failure is actually really helpful because hmm. I can try out a marketing campaign and be like, oh, that didn't work. Hmm. This worked, but that didn't work. So let me figure out why, how I put that information together to create a new campaign,
0: which is but troubleshooting.
1: Yeah, exactly. Which also we haven't been taught. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's one thing um, I get asked, and this is odd. uh, Counselors, just as a general rule, are not good with technology, but I'm pretty decent. Yeah, like I have. That's surprising. uh, I'll give you for instance. I had a guy who was the program coordinator of our counseling program, and he was looking for this particular policy. That was in a PDF file. And I was like, okay, well, let's um, just do like a search instead of just doing scrolling down through the whole 40 page document. And he's like, what are you talking about? Oh, no. I was like, oh, oh, sir. But with technology, I mean, really what you're saying is, well, that didn't work. What happens if I
0: do this? Uh-huh.
1: Mm, no, it explodes. Let's try this. <laughs>
0: don't push the red button okay i (laughs) want to push the red button yeah that's really interesting so
1: you know i think those are pieces um i also think a challenge is that you have to be allowed to do things on your own without Mm. someone overseeing things Uh, my major professor for my dissertation she um What what
0: was your dissertation on
1: uh, my dissertation, I developed the first um, pen and paper assessment, so not an observational one uh-huh. that someone actually filled out to assess the efficacy of play therapy. So Ooh. it was just like a thirty-item question that uh, uh, thirty-question questionnaire that parents could fill out, and then I was able to link it to like, oh, this actually can help determine how well or poorly your kid is doing. That's fascinating. And it was keyed to um health as opposed to dysfunction oh wow so how well is your kid at self-control as opposed to how many behavioral
0: problems does your kid have which is again back to like positive being able to positive reinforce negative behavior not necessarily not necessarily yeah. like encourage negative behavior but say hey like this is a behavior that's not the best but we can get, fix it in this way yeah that's really absolutely. cool so
1: um she went to uh, college orientation and one of the parents asked how do we get in touch with our students professors if we need to and i think the orientation director was like you don't so you can't
0: (laughs) we don't want you to contact anybody
1: (laughs) oh and like um just from a legal perspective if it's now i teach graduate students so it's people like in their mid-20s to early 50s so if (laughs) If their parents contact me, I'm like, delete. I not even going to respond. I can't even acknowledge that they're a student in the class. But the idea that that's a question is problematic. Um, So I think it starts not just with individuals, but it needs to start at the home of like, huh, well, I'll I'll let you figure that out. Uh, You know, um, I remember when I was first getting trained in working with kids. There, uh, we we had to do these sessions where there was a supervisor behind the glass so they could see like does this person know what they're doing, and this this kid was like on these one of these little carts that they like could push around and ride like a car, and when I got back after doing my session, one of them was like oh I would've been too scared he was gonna fall off or hurt himself I was like but he didn't. Um, and if he did, you know, we would handle that. But my approach with kids and with people has been, I'm gonna trust you know what you're doing, and that you'll reach out to me if you need help. Mm-hmm. But I'm not gonna be that person. who's like, oh, oh, sweet darling, don't want to hit your head, don't want to scrape your knee, because. You know, how you learn if you don't scrape
0: your knee. Well, again, as long as I'm not jumping off you know, 30 foot roof, I mean, our bodies can handle this. Like the bodies, the, the bones of a kid are very pliable. I mean, you can almost <laughs> bend, you can bend it. And, you know, adults' bones are, they crack because they've hardened a lot more. But, like, when you, I've never, bent a kid's bone because that'd be bad but (laughs) i mean when you look at a bump uh, kids bones are very very pliable so that's very like that's built into their infrastructure to be able to fall and not necessarily break a bone as easy as an adult
1: Well, one of the things i was taught is if a kid ever hurts themselves in the playroom like one pay attention but wait one second because sometimes when they see you're concerned that's the trigger Yep. To start having crocodile tears. That's like, yep. <laughs> sometimes I've been like, Oh, hey, are you um I, I had a kid that she was crying loudly and I was like, Hey, are you okay? And she's like, Yeah, I hurt myself. I'm like, Okay, well you can choose to put a band-aid on or we can put some water on. She's like, I'll take a band-aid, and then two seconds later she was not crying. I'm no. like,
0: Okay, cool. Problem <laughs> we solved. solve that problem. Yeah. So you kind of touched on this a second ago, how kids feel whenever adults react a certain way. You know, there's, uh, not a whole lot of research on, on the, uh, electromagnetic magnetic field that people give off. You know, mm-hmm. I know that when my, when I'm upset or my wife is upset, you know, my son is especially can, can feel, he doesn't know why, but he can feel those emotions without ever even really seeing her. So do you know much about why kids are more prone to feeling those kind of feelings?
1: what i would say is this and there's a million different terms for it but it's sort of that emotional pre-conscious um people in certain spiritual communities would talk about the deep self or the experiential self Mm -hmm. but it's that self that isn't the left logical it's sort of the right brain if you Mm -hmm. will picking up on things and so you can pick up on things that aren't said but it's like you're telegraphing them in every other way possible mm. um i'll share an example there was a this was a famous uh, psychoanalyst eric erickson mm-hmm. he was a erickson's five uh, or eight stages rather and he yep. shared this story about this kid and very i think this was in eastern europe and the grandmother had died and they were keeping her in a coffin in the basement until it was time for the wake. Oh, no. And they didn't tell the kid. And they told the kid it's just a bunch of boxes of books. <laughs> oh, and then no. the kids started having all these behavior pro- problems. <laughs> and they're like, Erickson, why is this? And I mean, uh, long story to say, like, he's basically like, he knows idiots. <laughs> like, you can't hide stuff from oh, them. Oh, man. Um, yeah. So I think in the same way, we we cred ourselves for being a lot trickier and a lot more sly than we really are. Mm-hmm. Like when, when you're mad, people probably know, even if you're trying not to. Yeah. When your partner's scared about something, you can pick up on that vibe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and those, those with vibes the,
0: are what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah. And I think that's hard to operationalize, but I definitely experience it. Yeah.
0: I love to see, with see more people happen. you
1: spend a lot of time with,
0: Yeah. Those vibes, I would love to see an actual quantifiable, you know project that shows, what it is, what exactly it means, you know, things like that. Because I, th- I definitely think that's there, and it, those vibes everybody feels, but we don't know why we feel it sometimes. You know, without it's that type of communication that is just in the air that you don't really know why is there. So,
2: yeah.
1: But, I, I think one thing that comes up for me is those vibes are made up of all these small volitional behaviors that you have to have a really good pattern recognition system. To understand, like I think of I've done lots of commuting in Dallas. And so I can tell when someone's going to change a lane without (laughs) making a lane signal. I'm like, okay, they're bobbing back and forth. They're speeding up and slowing down. I better back off because they're going to do something crazy. Mm. (laughs) And it's the same sort of stuff with people like, okay, they wrinkled their their brow and they there was a little bit of an edge in their voice and Mm. there's this and that. But you don't, you're not like saying that declaratively in your conscious brain, just your subconscious is picking it up. Mm -hmm. And then it has to put all these systems together to be like, okay, here's the picture. Here's the analysis. Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of like like there's a very complex statistical computer in your brain
0: that's trying to pick up patterns. Interesting. So we've, we've talked about a whole lot um, and I want to talk about more, but it's also getting, (laughs) we're getting, we're getting up there. Um, So imagine that you had, you were the the main advisor to, you know, president or whatever, and the president was like, Hey, like I, I need to fix these issues. Um, I don't know anything about the issues with kids and with the education system and all-star, whatever the test is. Imagine he gives you three things that he wants from you. What are the three points that you would give the world leader or American leader and say, these are the things that we need to fix right now in regards to the context of your work? What would that be?
1: Um, One is we need high profile people going to therapy and talking about therapy and how great it is Mm. and not just celebrities, but we need celebrities. We need high profile police officers, both on the rank and file and in the leadership. We need high profile people in the government, um, going to therapy and talking about how great it is and how it doesn't make you crazy (laughs) and really, um, um,
0: and really sort of destigmatizing it. Well, that's okay. great because like even this podcast with you has helped me understand a lot about some of the issues I have. And if, yes. if somebody who's even you know way higher up in the food chain can explain that same thing, it'll it'll change a whole lot. Absolutely. So I think that's that's item one is okay.
1: get therapy sort mm-hmm. of destigmatized. Yep. Um I think the second issue. This is what I would do. I don't know how it would work, but um, there's a school out on the east coast of college called the new school and they don't have grades. They will give you a narrative explanation of how you did for Uh. that semester in college. So instead of like, you know, your neuroscience professor being like, you got an 85, you would get like a page that says like, you know, Caleb, I think you're doing really well in uh, your understanding of um, the neurochemistry of neurons. And these are the sort of things I saw you being able to explain, but seems like neuroanatomy is something that's challenging for you, maybe because it's that rote memorization. Yeah. I would say all schools need to move to a model where they hire more teachers, so there's not an extra workload, but we move away from a, arbitrary ordinal or interval grading system and into a qualitative narrative based evaluation. I
0: love that that's amazing.
1: Um, so that's that's item number two. Let's see for my my, my third sort of genie wish here <laughs> for the present. Um, I would say, I would say we need to change what capitalism looks like in America. And I think that we need to look at quality indicators rather than quantity indicators. Specifically, are you doing good work at your job or are you just putting in hours? So um, and this is something my father-in-law works a lot. He's a um, he was past president of the medical Iowa system the Iowa Medical Society, okay. but was about quality based reimbursements. So the idea that if your doctor is doing things that generally relate to good health outcomes, they should be paid more than someone that just does as many procedures as possible because procedures pay more. Well, so I it's, think it's,
0: it's incentive based medicine, but it's a better incentive based medicine that talks more about quality medicine versus prescription medicine or yeah. who gets paid more based on what prescriptions you prescribe yeah or the one thing he deals with a lot because he's a
1: neurologist is this idea like okay this guy's doing more and he works with other people who aren't this guy's doing more surgeries or more procedures because they pay better than just talking with the patient and doing lifestyle assessments or medicine so but he gets paid more because that's how insurance companies deal with it so i would say across all industries, we need to look at quality measures and rewarding quality as opposed to you spent this many hours at the office, you did this many, like you did the best work for this one client that no one else could do. So, we're going to reward that with a bonus.
0: That's amazing. That's that's like right up my alley of passions, <laughs> like bringing awareness to some of these things that are occurring both in academia and medicine because that right there is really destroyed in my opinion um the effectiveness of our medicine or our whole entire medical system it's really no ab- absolutely so, so that's I- my wish list okay i love it man that was amazing i gotta got get your wife and your father-in-law on because <laughs> <this is like laughs> very interesting people <laughs> absolutely they are fascinating so, one day yeah. one day i'll have to email you later yeah. well dr hallman this was amazing i learned so much uh is there anything else you want to say
1: uh, you know, I think, uh, the last sort of tidbit I'll leave people with is if you're on the fence about, do I need help? Do I need therapy? Do I need this or that? Then it means it's time. All right. Mm-hmm. So if there's a question, it means it's time. And think about this. If you reach out for help and your therapist is like, this is normal. You don't need help. All you've lost is an hour of your life. But if you go on for another five years convincing yourself you don't need help when you could have been not miserable, you've lost so much. So there's nothing to lose by reaching out for
0: help. That's amazing. I, I know for me, it's it's been a in the past, at least it's been a financial thing. So what, what do you say to the people who can't really afford or their insurance doesn't cover this? Because that's also an issue where a lot of insurances won't cover um, these therapy sessions.
1: I think, um, and I'll say this, um, do you mind if I drop a plug for how people can contact me? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I'm available at Ryan at DallasPsychotherapy.com or um, uh, my website's DallasPsychotherapy.com. I love connecting with people who are like, how am I going to listen? I can't afford your rates, but where can I find people? And the fact is that even as bad a shape as mental health can be in, there are a lot of places I can look at just in my area code right now, I can point to four or five different places that provide free or low cost therapy. Mm. And so don't convince yourself just because I don't have insurance or I don't have $130 a week to burn. You can't get therapy. I'm not as huge of a fan of them, but places like better help. 40 bucks a month usually can get you a subscription to at least get some help. Mm. Um, if you're a university student, you're paying for a therapist salary. So go ahead and use it and get mm. your free session <laughs> every semester. Um, there are in Texas, just about every county has a county mental health service that provides different kinds of case management and things your property taxes are going towards that. So don't leave Uh. that on the table, right? It would be like paying for groceries and saying, you guys can just keep this candy bar. (laughs) I I feel like you guys have worked hard. No, like take advantage of every resource um, that you have. Um, So, and people can reach out to me if you're ever like, where could I go for therapy? I'm happy to give places that are, um, good resources, but it's out uh, there. Yeah, you seem like a really
0: good, uh, resourceful guy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So w- let me have you do this. Um, email me all that information and I'll put that in the show notes. That way people can refer to it, all the links, uh, phone numbers, all that. And I'll put it in the show notes as well.
1: Yeah. Does
0: that work? All right, Dr. Hallman. I really appreciate you. You have a okay, good day. That
1: sounds great. All right. Bye that'll work all right you too bye